Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put this podcast to the test. Put your headphones in your ear, Sherry, and we provide the rest. History and legacy. All the films you want to see. Try this podcast. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the listeners. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 141, Beauty and the Beast. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome, welcome, welcome back to the third birthday of Verbal Diorama. And whether you are a regular returning listener or indeed a brand new listener to this podcast, I am so happy that you're here because today, if you're downloading this on release day, is the actual third anniversary of Verbal Diorama's first episode ever being released. That episode was Titan AE. It came out on the 16th of February 2019. And every year since then, I've released three episodes around the time of the anniversary. And it's just become a bit of a tradition, to be honest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for all of your support. And it doesn't matter if you've literally just started listening or you've been listening since day one. I'm genuinely so grateful for all of the support that I've had throughout the three years that I've been doing this podcast. It is amazing that so many people are so interested in listening to what I have to say. The other thing is I am obviously wrapping up animation season 2022. That is something that I've also done for the past three years. Every January and February, I've been focusing on animated movies and to be honest, I always say it's one of my favourite things and it genuinely is because I get to geek out on animation, showcase all of these wonderful animated movies because animation is not a genre. That's the first thing. And the second thing is animation is not just for children. And Beauty and the Beast is probably the best example of a movie that is for families and a movie that is suitable for everyone, but it is definitely not just for children. And if you have been listening for a little while and you have listened to the previous episodes, I've done episodes recently on Anastasia and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. 
And yesterday, The Little Mermaid came out, which is well worth a listen, even if I do say so myself. Mainly because I go into quite a lot of what was going on at Disney during the early 80s and basically how the Disney Renaissance came to be. And throughout all of animation season, I've promised that I'm going to bring you the big guns. And so that's why I'm doing a huge three-part Disney Renaissance special. And it's continuing with the ninth movie this animation season, a movie that took what The Little Mermaid did and somehow elevated it, becoming the first animated movie to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. And that movie is, of course, Beauty and the Beast. Here is the trailer. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30th full-length animated motion picture. Is anyone here? Mama, there's a girl in the castle. Good. A girl! The classic story of Beauty and the Beast. He was a lonely beast, cursed by a mysterious spell. And she was the beautiful young girl who could set him and his kingdom free. She's the one! She has come to break the spell! They were two complete opposites. Anything to do with him. She is being so difficult. Until something wonderful happened. There's something sweet. Straighten up. And almost kind. Show me the smile. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. And now he's dear. You look so... And so unsure. Stupid. I wonder why I didn't see it there before. It's a story filled with fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Adventure. Sacre bleu. Invaders! And dozens of wonderful new Disney characters. Keep it down. Featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer and lyricist of The Little Mermaid. This holiday season, share the fun, the magic, and the music of an entertainment event you'll never forget. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Having refused to give her shelter from the bitter cold, a young prince is cursed by an enchantress to have the appearance of a monstrous beast. His only hope is to learn to love and be love in return in order to redeem himself. Ten years later, his chance shows itself when a young maiden named Belle offers to take her ill father Maurice's place as his prisoner after Maurice gets lost and accidentally trespasses on the castle grounds. With help from the castle's enchanted staff, Belle learns to appreciate her captor and they become friends. Back in the village, however, unscrupulous hunter Gaston has his own plans for Belle and sets out to kill the beast. As always, we'll quickly run through the cast. We have Paige O'Hara as Belle, Robbie Benson as the beast, Richard White as Gaston, Jerry Allback as Lumiere, David Ogden Steers as Cogsworth, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts, Bradley Pierce as Chip, Rex Everhart as Maurice, and Jesse Corti as LeFou. Beauty and the Beast has a screenplay by Linda Wolverton, a story by Brenda Chapman, Christopher Sanders, Bernie Mattinson, Kevin Harkey, Brian Pimentel, Bruce Woodside, Joe Ranft, Tom Ellery. Kelly Asbury and Robert Lentz, was directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise and based on the original story Beauty and the Beast by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont and the original tale by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. Following on from the last episode on The Little Mermaid, I'm going to go back 
way back in time to 1740 and the publication of La Belle à la Bête in La Jeune Américaine et les Contes Marins, or The Young American and Marine Tales. Sorry for the pronunciation on that, by the way. Terrible with pronunciation, as you know. By French novelist Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve. The story was influenced by ancient Greek stories like Cupid and Psyche, the Norwegian tale East of the Sun and West of the Moon, and The Pig King by Italian author Giovanni Francesco Straparola. It's estimated that the first version of the story originated 4,000 years ago, but I'm not planning to go back quite that far. Instead, we'll focus on Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve's version of the story, which was rather lengthy. It consisted of a widower merchant who lived with his three sons and three daughters. His youngest daughter, named Beauty, is pure of heart and kind, but his other daughters are spoiled and selfish. When the merchant loses all his money, he decides to try his luck on the trade ships that have returned to port and before leaving asks his children what he can bring back for them when he regains his wealth. They all ask for extravagant things, except for Beauty who asks for a single rose. The merchant finds the ship's cargo has been seized and that he must return penniless. On his return, he's caught in a storm and seeks shelter in an empty palace where food and warmth is readily available. The next morning he goes to leave and snips a single rose from the garden of the palace. He's confronted by a hideous beast who warns him that the penalty for theft is death, unless he brings the daughter who wanted the rose to the beast for death instead. On his return, he eventually confides the truth to his children and Beauty sneaks out to accept her fate with the beast. But the beast tells her he will not kill her and that she is his guest of honour and at night she dreams of a handsome prince captive in the palace. Beauty lives in the palace for a month and has every luxury available to her, but the beast learns that the merchant is sick and sends Beauty back home to care for him, but says she must return in one week. Her family refuses to let her return to the beast and one week passes. Beauty begins to have nightmares about the death of the beast. She returns to the palace only to find her family have killed the beast and she laments the loss of her friend and realises she should have learned to look past the beast's ugliness. She states that she's sorry for her family's actions and lets the words, I am sorry, fall from her lips. And those words transform the beast into the prince from her dreams. The family agree to let Beauty marry the prince, and they live happily ever after. An abridged version of this story by Jeanne-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont was published in 1756 in Magasin des Enfants, and this is the version most commonly retold. There are several variants of the story told across the world, specifically in Europe, so when Angela Lansbury sings, tale as old as time, it actually is. We're always told that beauty is only skin deep and it's what's inside that counts. And it was a story that, like The Little Mermaid before it, resonated with Walt Disney himself. And like The Little Mermaid, Walt wanted to adapt Beauty and the Beast after the success of Snow White in 1937. Disney attempted to get this story off the ground in the 1930s and also in the 1950s, but the story team struggled to make this particular fairy tale fit the Disney mould. In the meantime, Jean Cocteau, had made an incredibly popular live-action version of the story in 1946 called La Belle à la Bête, a French-language version with exquisite makeup and trick shots. In 2010, Empire ranked La Belle à la Bête number 26 in their 100 best films of world cinema. Clearly, in the 50s, there seemed no point in making an animated version, and so the idea was put on hold. Just like The Little Mermaid again, the idea was brought back in the 1980s. The first treatment for a version of Beauty and the Beast was created by Pete Young, Vance Jerry and Steve Hewlett in 1983. 
Another treatment was written in 1985 by Phil Nibbling and Stephen E. Gordon. And then in 1988, when Jim Cox submitted a further two treatments, which focused on the French setting, Beauty's father being an inventor, and Enchanted Items in the Castle, an homage to Jean Cocteau's 1946 version. Cox finished a screenplay, but at this point, Disney had set up a satellite animation studio in London to work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And during the midst of production in Glendale on The Little Mermaid, and please have a listen to the previous episode for everything that went on before and during that particular production, producers instead enlisted Linda Wolverton to work on a screenplay after Jeffrey Katzenberg saw a spec script for a Winnie the Pooh movie that she had written that would ultimately never be used. Beauty and the Beast marks the first time an animated Disney movie has had a screenplay. The director of Roger Rabbit's animated sections, Richard Williams, was approached to direct Beauty and the Beast, but he declined to continue his work on The Thief and the Cobbler, which remains one of the most interesting non-completed movies of all time, I think. Williams instead recommended animation director Richard Purdom and Jill Purdom, who accepted the job. And work began on a non-musical version of Beauty and the Beast, to be set in 19th century France. Yes, this was not going to be a musical. A small team of experienced animators, including Glenn Keane, Andreas Doja, Tom Sito, Hans Bakker and Paul DeMeyer, went to London to work on the Purdom version. And the Purdom version was a sombre drama, which had Maurice as a merchant sailor, his sister Marguerite, Belle's aunt, as oppressive and cruel. Belle would also have a younger sister called Clarice and a cat called Charlie. The enchanted objects would just be objects. They would have no personalities or faces or voices. There was little enthusiasm for this version, despite a screenplay and storyboards being worked on for months. When Richard Purdom flew to Florida to present his version to Peter Schneider, president of Walt Disney Feature Animation, it was received poorly, with criticisms against its dark tone, the fact that Belle's art felt like Cinderella's evil stepmother. It took till page 32 of a 75-page script for Belle to even meet the Beast. Producer Don Hahn announced everything was being scrapped and started again, and that they wanted to bring Howard Ashman and Alan Menken onto the project after their stellar work on The Little Mermaid. Ashman didn't want to take on Beauty and the Beast due to his planned upcoming work on Aladdin, but he reluctantly agreed. After a research trip to Paris, the animators returned to Los Angeles and Hahn, Wolverton and the Purdoms worked on reworking Beauty and the Beast this time with the help of Ashman and Menken. The Purdom version presented to Schneider can be found on the Beauty and the Beast Blu-ray release in 2010. In 1989, Richard Purdom wasn't happy that his vision of Beauty and the Beast was being so dramatically changed, and he and Jill Purdom left the project. John Musker and Ron Clements were approached to direct, but they'd just finished The Little Mermaid and wanted a break. A pair of first-time feature directors Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale were assigned to the project. They had previously overseen Cranium Command, a short film at Epcot, and together Wise, Trousdale, Ashman and Menken worked on a musical version of Beauty and the Beast. What most people didn't know at the time was that Howard Ashman had been diagnosed as HIV positive. It was during his time working on Beauty and the Beast that his health started to decline. The entire production of Beauty and the Beast was moved to the Residence Inn, in Fishkill, New York, to be closer to Ashman's New York City home with the team flying back and forth from California to New York for storyboard approvals. No one knew why the production moved and no one had any inkling it was to do with Howard Ashman's failing health. Work continued to make the gloomy, depressive Purdom version to add warmth and comedy. 
And like The Little Mermaid, many of these ideas came from Howard Ashman. It was his idea to give the enchanted items voices and personalities because, as he said, who's going to sing my songs? Gaston, who in the Purdom version was more of a French aristocrat, was made into the ultimate in toxic masculinity and misogyny. Belle was written by Linda Wolverton, not with the Jean Cocteau version in mind, but with Catherine Hepburn from 1933's Little Women in mind. By the time casting came about, Belle was a fully formed woman, not a teenage girl like every other princess. The production originally considered casting Jodie Benson, who'd previously played Ariel in The Little Mermaid, of course. However, they wanted a more womanly voice. Broadway singer and actress Paige O'Hara made her motion picture debut as Belle after reading about the film in the New York Times. She auditioned against 500 others and was 30 when she was cast as the mid-twenties Belle, with Howard Ashman particularly admiring her cast recording of Showboat. Belle herself was modelled on Judy Garland and, believe it or not, is Disney's first brunette princess. Robbie Benson won the role of Beast over Lawrence Fishburne, Val Kilmer and Mandy Patinking. I would have loved a Mandy Patinking voice Beast, I'll be honest. And bear in mind, this was before animated movies gave roles to famous names. Robin Williams would make this kind of a popular trope of animated movies. But even then, this movie did star Angela Lansbury, herself a Disney legend, as well as a TV icon as Mrs Potts. Originally, Mrs Potts was called Mrs Chamomile, and this role was intended for another Disney legend and general icon, Julie Andrews. Baby's father himself, the late Jerry Orbach, is wonderful as Lumiere. John Cleese was approached for Cogsworth, but he turned it down for Don Bluth's An American Tale, Five All Goes West. The role would go to David Ogden Steers, who would also provide the narration for the beautiful opening scenes with the stained glass windows. The cast would record their songs alongside an orchestra rather than it being overdubbed separately. Angela Lansbury's recording of the title track was completed in one take due to her concerns that her voice wouldn't be suited to the ballad. This song would go on to win the Best Original Song Academy Award. One take. That's all Angela Lansbury needed. How incredible is she? Obviously, time had been lost on the production from the throwing out of the original concept by Richard Purdom. And because of this, production on Beauty and the Beast was a compressed two-year production, whereas The Little Mermaid took four years. Most of the work was undertaken at Flower Street, Glendale, where the animation department had been moved to as penance. Listen to The Little Mermaid for more on that. But an additional animation team at the Disney MGM Studios in Lake Buena, Florida, also assisted with key scenes. Unlike The Little Mermaid, though, where the process had only been trialled on a small number of scenes, Beauty and the Beast and its predecessor, The Rescuers Down Under, took advantage of Pixar's CAPS, Computer Animation Production System, which was a digital scanning, ink and paint and compositing software that minimised the amount of time it took to manually paint cells. It allowed for a wider range of colour, 6 million shades, and also allowed for the digital simulation of the famous Disney multiplane camera, most of which had been out of commission since the 60s. Whereas The Little Mermaid used CG wireframe models, which were plotted to cells and painted traditionally, Beauty and the Beast made use of CG 3D rendering of simulated spaces for the famous ballroom dance sequence, which allowed the camera to dolly around the characters and pan up to a beautiful chandelier. Caps afforded an easier way to combine hand-drawn and CG imagery by layering it all like acetate. Overseeing the CG work for the ballroom sequence was CG supervisor Jim Hillin, Bear in mind as well that the camera also dollies around Belle during the song Belle and all of this is totally hand-drawn and it's honestly one of the most beautiful scenes in the whole movie just for the fact that it must have been so technically difficult to animate. 
It was the success of the Beauty and the Beast ballroom scene that convinced Disney executives to further invest in CG animation, which led to more involvement with Pixar via their Renderman software. And obviously from this came Toy Story, but that's the story for episode 50 of this podcast. Also in a nod to earlier Disney reusing its animation and as a necessity because of the quick timescales involved, Belle and Prince Adams, because yes, his name is Prince Adam, that is canonical. Belle and Prince Adam's final dance was reused animation from Sleeping Beauty. In the episodes I did last year of Robin Hood and the Jungle Book, I talked about Disney's reuse of animation, which was mostly a cost-cutting exercise. Glenn Key in the animator for Beast, who reportedly based the character on the mane of a lion, the beard and head of a buffalo, the brow of a gorilla, the tusks of a wild boar, the body of a bear, the legs and tail of a wolf, but most importantly, the eyes of a human. And Beast retains the same eyes throughout his transformation back into Prince Adam because the emotional centre of the character is his eyes and brows. He was not allowed to see Robbie Benson perform as Beast, just in case he subconsciously made Beast look like Benson. Keane would not meet Robbie Benson until after the movie was complete. Due to the timescales and deadlines remaining, I've obviously talked a lot about the fact they only had two years to make this movie, Glenn Keane would only have one week to start and finish the Beast's transformation scene. This was his final scene that he needed to animate. He expressed his frustration to Don Hahn that he had this amazing scene to do but he didn't have the time to do it. He was given as much time as he needed for this pivotal and iconic scene, which included real smoke, and also took inspiration from the sculpture of the Burgers of Calais by Rodin. And I spoke a little about the lighting in The Little Mermaid, but the light and shade in Beauty and the Beast, especially in relation to the Beast, is just some of the most exquisite animation. In an interview, Glen Keane would say, the whole point, I think, behind all of this is to give you a sense of the work that goes into animating something that is all behind the scenes. It's described in a term that I learned from the Renaissance by a man that was trying to describe the work of Raphael. And he said, it's sprezzatura. And sprezzatura means art that hides its art. And that's what animation is. It's an art form that's hiding all of this that we're showing you right now. Because really, in the final colour, you're just following along, believing the character is real. And speaking of art forms, let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. This is something that I like to do on this podcast, where I like to try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it's always hard to link Keanu to a Disney movie. And really, the only thing I could think is... Doesn't the human Prince Adam have the same hair as Keanu? It's just that it's blonde and not dark. And wouldn't you run your fingers through it like Belle does? Because, yeah, you would, and I would too. Now, I have spoken a little bit about the music and about Howard Ashman. And obviously, yet again, I feel like the heart of this movie lives with Howard Ashman's lyrics and Alan Menken's music. Changes made to the movie included an earlier version having Be Our Guest, sung to Maurice instead of Belle, and this was changed because why would you have such an incredible song sung to a secondary character? I waxed lyrical, quite literally, about Howard Ashman last episode because he was so core to making The Little Mermaid what it was. And here, yet again, it showed us what an incredible talent he was. Howard Ashman would confide in Alan Menken after their Oscar win for The Little Mermaid about his HIV diagnosis. He died of AIDS-related complications at the age of 40 on the 14th of March 1991 eight months before Beauty and the Beast was released. He only ever saw the movie in an unfinished format. He never saw this movie as we see this movie. His planned work on Aladdin would end up being completed by Tim Rice. He became weaker and weaker as the production progressed. 
he ended up completely blind and bedridden towards the very end. Howard Ashman was one of the defining people in my life from such a young age, and I didn't even fully comprehend or appreciate that till I realised that my favourite musical, Little Shop of Horrors, and my favourite Disney movies contained his songs. Watching the documentary Howard completely devastated me. That such an incredibly talented human being who shaped the world of animation, changed the way animation was seen, not just by regular viewers, but by filmmaking peers who were members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. He created this template of Disney musicals that they're still using today, even in more recent movies like Encanto, by making the music a focal point for character development and plot progression. Howard Ashman was committed, driven, focused and brilliant. I mentioned last episode that he gave Ariel her voice. Without him, Beauty and the Beast would have likely been darker, less imaginative, less fun. Just imagine what he could be doing now if he was still alive. And back then, HIV and AIDS was a death sentence. We are so fortunate now that's not the case. And HIV positive people can lead a relatively normal life and not pass the virus on to others if they're on medications. What I will say is please watch Howard if you have Disney+. Plus. It is a tearjerker for sure, but it's such a wonderful tribute to a remarkable lyricist, artist and man who put his heart and soul into everything that he did. An unfinished version of Beauty and the Beast was shown at the New York Film Festival on 29th September 1991, with 70% of the animation completed, with storyboards and pencil tests used in replacement of the missing 30%. This screening would receive a 10-minute long standing ovation. The finished movie premiered at the El Capitan Theatre on 13th of November 1991 and rolled out wide on the 22nd of November 1991, the same week as The Adams Family, which hit number one at the box office. That's episode 119 of this podcast, by the way. Beauty and the Beast had to make do with a number three after Cape Fear. In a turn of events mirroring The Little Mermaid again, it was also released the same time as a Don Bluth movie. That movie was an American tale, Fievel Goes West which landed at number five that week. While Beauty and the Beast would never get higher than third at the US box office, it would stay in the top 10 for 15 weeks and ended up becoming the third most successful film of 1991 in North America, surpassed only by Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It would earn in its first theatrical run $145.9 million in the US and $103 million worldwide, making it the first animated movie to hit $100 million in the US. It would also be re-released in IMAX in 2000, 3D in 2010 and 2012, and re-released in its original format in 2021. Counting all of its releases, it's made $425 million worldwide. Not bad for a movie, originally only costing $25 million. And Beauty and the Beast was universally acclaimed by critics, with the likes of Janet Maslin stating, Two years ago, Walt Disney Pictures reinvented the animated feature, not only with an eye toward pleasing children, but also with an older, savvier audience in mind. Disney truly bridged a generation gap with The Little Mermaid. Now lightning has definitely struck twice with Beauty and the Beast. And as I mentioned at the start of this episode, Beauty and the Beast changed awards season. When it was nominated against hard-hitting live-action biographies like Bugsy and JFK and psychological thrillers like Silence of the Lambs, and a huge romantic drama like The Prince of Tides. You could argue that Beauty and the Beast stood little chance, but it was still nominated for the highest award for achievement in Hollywood. The Silence of the Lambs would prevail, and back then there was no Best Animated Feature Award. That would be created in 2002 and would of course be won by Shrek, a movie that parodies this in so many ways. But the fact that an animated movie could achieve such a prestigious honour 
defied the so-called limitations of animation as a medium purely for children and decreed it was worthy of industry recognition. And it achieved this in a field of five nominees. Up would achieve it in 2009 alongside nine other nominees and Toy Story 3 would achieve it against eight other nominees. Beauty and the Beast was the first picture to receive three Academy Award nominations for Best Original Song, a feat that would be repeated by The Lion King, Dreamgirls and Enchanted. Academy rules have since been changed to limit each film to two nominations in this category due to the consecutive unintentional failures of Dreamgirls and Enchanted to win the award. Beauty and the Beast would go on to be nominated for six Oscars in total, including Best Sound and three Best Original Song nominations, as I said. It would go on to win for its score and for its title track, sung so beautifully by Angela Lansbury. The Golden Globes would honour it with a Best Motion Picture Musical or Comedy Award win, as well as Best Original Score and Best Original Song for Beauty and the Beast. Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson would win a Grammy for their version of Beauty and the Beast. And the soundtrack would also win a Best Album for Children Grammy, Best Instrumental Composition Written for a Motion Picture, Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or for Television, and Best Pop Instrumental Performance Grammys. There were animated director video sequels, Beauty and the Beast The Enchanted Christmas, Beauty and the Beast Belle's Magical World, and Belle's Tales of Friendship, all of which take place in the timeline of the original, as well as a spin-off television series, Sing Me a Story with Belle. A Broadway musical, the 10th longest-running show in history, premiered on Broadway in April 1994 and ended its run in July 2007. And I suppose I have to briefly mention the live-action adaptation, which, for me, is merely okay. One of the things I love about Beauty and the Beast is Paige O'Hara's stunning vocals. Emma Watson is a good actor, and she's very pretty, but she doesn't have the pipes for Belle. But I applaud her for trying. I just think it's fine. It feels kind of soulless to me, especially compared to this version. There's just no universe where the live-action version is better. It does add some interesting concepts. But overall, I kind of have no desire to rewatch it, whereas I will rewatch this one constantly. And I have rewatched it constantly. Who could ever learn to love a beast? Quite a few of us, it would seem. Beauty and the Beast took the foundations built by the Little Mermaid, and sturdy foundations they were too, and built upon with rich themes of female empowerment, with a heroine who does want adventure in the Great Woods somewhere. Just like Ariel, really. There are many parallels between this story and The Little Mermaid, but Beauty and the Beast actually gives the relationship between Belle and Beast some credence. Yes, he imprisons her, and yes, Stockholm Syndrome is officially referred to when discussing this movie. And if you want a really good YouTube video of Beauty and the Beast and its depiction of Stockholm Syndrome, because I'm not a licensed therapist or mental health professional, then check out Cinema Therapy. Ultimately, the therapist on that channel said this was Stockholm Syndrome, but not what people think Stockholm Syndrome actually is. Beast doesn't change Belle. She changes him. Belle only really starts to love Beast after he says that she can leave to be with her father, and she returns to save him from Gaston. And I haven't even really spoken about Gaston, but as far as Disney villains go, he's one of the best. Preening, self-absorbed, narcissistic, misogynistic. He's very easy to dislike, and yet as a character, he's absolutely brilliant. I mentioned last episode about putting the credit on Howard Ashman. And there's no doubt that, again, everyone working on this movie put everything into this movie. But Ashman's influence is there, in the songs, and also felt during the mob songs specifically. As a gay man dying of AIDS-related complications in a world where AIDS made you a pariah, it makes you think of how much times have changed, but also how much they've stayed the same. And I can't stress enough how much you should watch Howard. It's on Disney+. Plus. 
While you're there, also check out Waking Sleeping Beauty. That is also an excellent documentary about Disney. It's no wonder that when asked what the best animated Disney movie is, many people still flock to this. So much so they've tried to emulate it in live action. But there are no limits to what animation can deliver. The gaping differences between this movie and its live action adaptation are a great example. As great as Emma Watson looks as Belle and Dan Stevens in his motion capture as Beast, there's only so much personality that can come through in live action. And this is something the live action Lion King also really struggled with too, as did I because I did not finish that movie and I'm going to come to that next episode. This is exactly the sort of tale Walt himself would have made. And that's why, regardless of the innovations in animation, it's still so magical. If animation is just for children, why did this get nominated for an actual Academy Award by actual grown-ups? You might say it enchants you. Hang on, did the Enchantress put a spell on all of us to enjoy this? Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Beauty and the Beast. This is the part of the podcast where I normally go into a, a load of gubbins about you can do this and you can do that to help this podcast. But do you know what? You have helped this podcast just by listening to this podcast. You have helped this podcast just by supporting this podcast. By doing all of the things that you could do to help this podcast. So for all of the ratings and reviews and retweets and likes and all of the times that you've told your family about this podcast, I'm truly, truly grateful. And so I'm not going to ask you to do any of that, although it would be nice if you did. But these episodes are special episodes for a reason. And they are episodes to thank you, the listeners, for really being here for me on this journey over the last three years, sitting in this room pretty much for the last three years, talking about movies and doing all of the work that goes into this podcast. It's amazing to me that I've been doing this for three years and it's not something that I'm planning on stopping anytime soon because I love doing what I do. I love what Verbal Diorama does and I love what Verbal Diorama gives to people. So I'm just really, truly grateful that you've been here with me throughout this journey. And as I've hinted at, the next episode that I'm going to be talking about is going to be on the 1994 version of The Lion King and that episode is going to be out tomorrow. So if you're listening to this, on release day, tomorrow, you're going to get The Lion King. And I know a lot of people are looking forward to The Lion King, as am I looking forward to The Lion King. But as I said, no gubbins at the end. Huge thank you to everyone. A huge thank you to the patrons who basically keep the lights on <laughs> for this podcast. So really, the only thing I have left to say is, and finally, as this movie was dedicated to Howard Ashman, so is this episode. To our friend Howard who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul. We will be forever grateful. Tale as old as time True as it can be Barely even friends then somebody bends unexpectedly Just a little change Small to say the least Both a little scared Neither one prepared Beauty and the peace Ever just the same Ever a surprise Ever as before Ever just as sure 
as the sun will rise Tale as old as time Tune as old as song Bittersweet and strange Finding you can change Learning you were wrong Certain as the sun Rising in the east, tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Off to the cupboard with you now, Chip. It's past your bedtime. Good night.